This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm uh, Dave. And I'm the Machine. Hmm. A -hmm. podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The Machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film Smithereens. big thank you to our patrons over on patreon their contributions help us continue this show since you know the machine doesn't help us pay for these movies plus each month we do a bonus episode over there this month of may we're going to be talking about the boyfriend the return of ken russell the man who directed the devils so we're going to be talking about the boyfriend some sex thirst nuns i'm sure right now before (laughs) we get into talking about this week's film there's a couple things i thought we should do first we have to pay off this cliffhanger that i know everybody has been waiting to know the answer to we left off last week trying out the door i was trying to open it to see if we could just walk through and come back okay the modern year you know the door dave that all of our guests walk through yeah yeah, right this interdimensional portal i always thought it was like a projection but i Mm. guess they're here physically now yeah yeah well the door didn't open the last time we tried to get out we can't yeah, get out true we can't get out okay so the cliffhanger just to, to pay that off is that when, when when i did open it it did open up but all it was was just an an empty door like if you went to ikea right and you test their mm, a door or something one, one, d- one way door okay right so it seems what like movie is that from i feel like this, i feel like this is like a movie all right keep it's going uh, the truman show i don't know i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> anyways so i don't know why we cannot Narnia? walk through it huh. i think it's just the whim of this evil machine, Dave, decides when and where we get to go through this interdimensional portal that is just sitting here beside us. I don't know how many times I have to say that I don't like you. I read a Canadian book, essentially for kids, called Barren Grounds. You should read that. Okay. There's a door in that too. Fascinating. Is that a, a, a graphic novel or what is no, it? No, it's a, it's a novel. It's written by, I can't remember which, yeah, First Nations Canadian author. Okay. And the loose summary are two uh, indigenous kids in foster care mm-hmm. who are not related and they're foster just a quick thing their foster parents are actually nice people discover a door in the attic which oh. takes them somewhere interesting so it's basically yeah. narnia is what you're saying I, essentially i read it to emerson and we were both crying oh yeah it's a good book i didn't know you were such a beta cuck but okay great 
Great, great story, Dave. Offensive. <laughs> Offensive. No, I don't want to give too much away, but there's a talking bear in it. So No, I was just looking at it. It looks great. It looks like there's a sequel to it as well. So Yeah, it hasn't been released yet, or is it out? Because mm. no, I'm I didn't, waiting I didn't for check it. that far. Yeah, you yeah. see that there is a sequel that has a big bear on the cover by the looks yeah. of it. I can remember their names, but it's good. It's a good book. Go read right. it if you if you're Canadian or not. You know. Well, a segue from books, Dave, because <laughs> this week's film tangentially is about Ooh. music. Okay. Right. Yeah. Not really about music, but it's kind of going around the music industry of New York City in like the early 80s. I thought it might be a good time to visit. What was the music of 1982 like? Have you looked at this? Like the, what the top 10 songs of 1982 were? In pop were? culture? In pop culture, um, yes. If you had to guess like the artists that were being represented in 1982, 82. who do you 82. think were there? The Police? They're probably around. I would think they're yeah. around. Uh, 82. Queen is still out there. Uh-huh. This is hard because he, he, here's the hard thing too, <laughs> I find, is that I actually think what we consider 80s, is like the, the, the 80s, the most 80s things are like 84 to 88. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so 82 is almost like a bit too early for like the true 80s-ness to, well, to, to that, break through. You're like in that cusp between uh, classic rock, you get the mm -hmm. disco phase, and now yes. we're getting to the new wave punk, new yes. wave British music. 100%. Joy Division's well, around. They're like 77, so New Order comes out a little bit later. Right. Not 82. Patch of Boys later. Who, el who else is around? Billy Idol? Uh, let, me, let me tell you. Let me tell you this, Dave. I'm sharing my screen here. That's Okay, that's a little rude. We're not going to listen to every, <laughs> like the full songs here, but I do have the top 10 preloaded up. Number 10 is Chicago. Do you ever listen to Chicago? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Little this song is 82. Called I would have 82. assumed this, this is later. This is probably at the end of them being relevant, I would say, because they went from like a prog rock band to like singing love ballads. And so if you were a hardcore Chicago fan, this is when you dropped off. We're like, no. And then this is when the more popular people started listening to Chicago. I think I knew how to play this on the piano. <laughs> so, if you were like super into Chicago, this is the album that came out, and you're like, absolutely not. <laughs> I am not listening to this anymore. Sing this, sing it with me, Kyle. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> anyway, so that's Chicago. That's the number ten song of 1982. Right. Yeah. But you're talking about classic Steve rock. Miller. I think you're right. Oh Steve God. Miller Band is it's number nine, right? Old. Yeah. Right. Which I was listening to this earlier. I'm fairly confident I've never heard this song in my life. Abracadabra. <laughs> Abracadabra by the Steve Miller Band. Let me, let me get Do you know this? this? I'm... No. Yeah, I don't, don't, but it was like, the... That tone in the intro is so like 80s. You're like, yes. I probably know this. And then they keep going you're like, no, never heard this song before. Yeah, this is no, the ninth knows. most popular song no, of 1982. And then back to back, Dave. Okay. Mellencamp. Back to back, we get two John Cougar Mellencamp songs. Wow. Right? So, oh, that's one, a good picture. The first is Hurt So I Good. I should tuck in my shirt more often. <laughs> yeah. We're seeing a very stern looking John Cougar Mellencamp in a white tee and a buckled belt uh, and a, a tucked in shirt. So. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say that this is a hit in 1982 and then appears in Footloose two years later. <laughs> so, and then it gets even more popular at that point. Are you going to play the music while, I, you know, or actually you probably yeah, get the license over problems. there, Dave, bouncing up and down. You look, this uh, is like the radio when I was growing up. 
right? I mean, I'm yeah, four this is, this in is definitely playing on the radio. Yeah, this would be on all the re- uh, retrospective radio stations as I'm growing up. So I've heard all of this, these songs the, before. This is also proves too that I guess I just didn't realize how popular John Mellencamp was. Uh, John Cougar. Mellencamp. John Cougar. Oh, this is an amazing right. song. And then Jack and Diana's the other one. So a little bit more popular. Come on, it's you great know opening this. though, right? Great little hook here at the beginning. Tell the story. The story's like this. This he opening goes rapping, forever. Right? It like, takes like forty <laughs> seconds before the actual song starts. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Look, what else? There we go. There, he finally, he's finally Jack started singing. Okay, so that was what ten, nine, eight, seven. So this is number six here uh, from uh, the Human oh, yeah. League. Some British. Brit- yeah. This is the '80s song, right? This is like you're hearing those uh, synthesizers dun, dun, going. Dun, 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 Don't you want me? That that's what dun, the song is. I imagine you dancing to this, Kyle. I like a. Yeah, I have my two like my my uh, light up. Uh, and like a mesh and a mesh. The mesh uh, shirt that is on. Yeah, I have. The glow sticks are in my hand. Yeah. All right, great song. Like I'm like song Jan- This is like, but very yeah, 80s. This is me growing up. All right, you got me nostalgia. Can we get into here the oh. kind of the top five? So, have you ever heard Seven about fold? the Jay Giles band, Dave? I know the song. Do you really? But, I yeah. did not. I've. If you had told me, you know the the song Centerfold by the Jay Giles band, I'd be like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. I think you like And then you're like, yeah, of course I know this song. <laughs> One hit wonder. The guy second be, right? from the right is not looking too happy to be in this band. He's like, I don't, I don't want to be here. I'm glad that you're referencing <laughs> things people cannot actually see. But I also like that the guy second from left looks like a young Santana. He does look like that's what I was saying. Looks like Santana. Yeah. Third guy looks like he's going to prison. Yeah. There's just something. Not be there. And then yeah. we have like young Rod Stewart there, second from right, who's like, I was photoshopped into this photo later because I did. This is what not, I was just I saying. Stand I, the band. Are you repeating my comments? All right. I can't hear you over the songs playing in my ears, Dave. Oh, we got a little 48 hour reference with Edmund yeah. and Arbery. Yep. I'll be. I'll go on. I'll go on record here, Dave. I don't actually like this song. No, this song sucks, but it's <laughs> like it's. I don't. I like the message that the the, the song what, is that promoting. Likes pianos. I mean, I, I, I <laughs> well, it's black and white uh, coming together, Dave. But it's a bad song. It's not. It's not a good song. The skit is good, but apparently enough to be the fourth be- most popular oh, wow. song of 1982. It's probably because you know, honestly, it's probably because of uh, Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo. <laughs> of course. Then we Ooh, get to Joan, Joan Jett. Jett. Nice. Um, Joan she Jett. was uh, divisive, right? Why? What's divisive? This is an amazing song. Um, I've always heard that she got into um, like the hardcore rock crowd thought she was such a poser. So like there'd be people who'd come to her concerts and like boo her. Oh, off sounds the stage. like uh, Veruca Salt. They had that right. problem too. They disappeared because people called them plastic. But I like their first album. Anyway, it's like a song that is still played on the radio today, basically. If you were to listen to radio, which I don't, so I'm assuming. Put this in the video. <laughs> Throw up the horns. 
Anyways, that's number three. And then, of course, of the course, greatest number song two. Ever written, we haven't right? gotten uh, to this, this movie here yet, Dave. But This is the greatest song ever written. Rocky Three debuts this song. He's driving in his, uh, is it a Corvette or a Lamborghini? He's all upset, right? In the night, <laughs> right. as he's driving, trying to think about, how am I going to fight Mr. T? That's right. <laughs> It's so iconic too, right? It's uh, you. You almost think this is in the first Rocky movie. That's how good this song is. It's like, no, it doesn't come until Rocky Three. This is when this song actually uh, is the first Rocky movie it shows up, and then it has to be in like basically every Rocky movie after that. Uh, this is in every fighting movie ever made. Right. <laughs> I mean, how can you not put this in? It's the Eye of the Tiger. I mean, if you're gonna have an eye of an animal, it's the to eye fight. of the tiger. It's the thrill of the fight, Dave. When you look at a bear, which are scary, their eyes are kind of cute. They don't have like scary eyes. So right. you can't say I have the eye of the bear. That's kind right. of boring, right? By the way, another song that takes like 50 seconds for the song to actually start. It's a very long intro into it. Um, and then of course, number one. Olivia. Number one. We talked about her already. Oh, physical. Miss Olivia Newton-John. Which apparently was offered to, uh... The I devil? just read this. <laughs> yeah, one second, one second, one second. It was offered this... to... Tina Turner. Tina Turner was supposed to sing this song oh, originally. Oh, I could hear Tina Turner on and this. And then she turned it down, and then Olivia Newton-John got... And it became the biggest song of her career. <laughs> and really launched her, so... While Grease 2 is in theaters, Olivia Newton-John has physical, like, burning up the charts. <laughs> it's amazing how this one is pure elevator music now. Yeah, really, right? It does not hold up at all. If she wasn't doing aerobics at this time, because she's very pretty in this era, nobody would right. give a shit about this song, right? P perhaps, perhaps. Anyways, I just think that's an interesting, like, idea. Like, this is what kind of the popular music of the day was in general terms. So I like terms, all the movies the this year. Ten. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's my music, it's my You're culture, these are my Dave. people. Yeah, these are my people, Kyle. You are in the same outfit that Olivia Newton-John has in the music video for Physical. If I had a so. headband, it'd be pretty close. I love me a good leotard. That's right. Not enough techno for me. I thought you were going to go a little punk. I guess punk has always been a little bit more underground than like popular yeah. necessarily. Well, it's like if you said, what's popular right now? I would hate every song sure. that's on a chart in 2021 or 2022, but there's so much good music being created in right. general. So that's in opposition to what this movie is going to be talking about, the very underground people. And we'll be talking about a band that I actually don't know anything about, so hopefully you have something to say about them, because I have no, uh, uh, meh, no history with them. Never heard of Anyways, them. Yeah. talking about that, do you have any history with this film whatsoever? No, never heard of it. I have also not heard of it other than I knew it entered in the Criterion Collection last year. So I was like, oh, a 1982 Kyle's film. Kyle's always got to pretend that he knows he's aware of every film. I'm, oh, I've heard of this. I just heard of it. I'm on Letterboxd all the time, though, too. So I see people like talking about movies and, and reviewing, reviewing them. You can let so. it go. It's okay to be ignorant. How about, how about Susan Seidelman? <laughs> Do you know anything about Susan Seidelman? Well, I learned that I should know because I've seen some of her other films. Yes. But I haven't, I didn't know. Like, as you know, I don't follow the directors. So, uh, yeah. So I'm going to say no. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's more of when you uncover like, oh, she did Desperately Seeking Susan. Right. Which is like the big one that, that came right after this. It's a, basically, she had, she talks about this. There's a, there's a 40 minute uh, documentary on the Criterion channel talking about this movie and a little bit about what uh, Susan Solomon and, um, 
one second. Susan Berman did afterwards. Someone was talking about like she was in New York. She was totally into the scene that she's talking about in this movie, but also knew about Madonna, who was starting off at that time. So she just hires her to be in the movie right at the time as Madonna hits huge. So it was like this really interesting confluence of things. She um, also apparently, Seidelman, uh, essentially created Sex in the City. So how's that for a tone change? Yeah. And she also, I've not seen this movie, but I've been curious to watch it for years because apparently it's one of those ones that are considered one of the worst movies of all time <laughs> called She Devil with Roseanne Barr and Meryl uh, Streep. Yeah, her, Roseanne Barr's first film. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah. I'm, I'm always canceled, so curious. So I'm sure it's been blocked on streaming services. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's my, my history. I know her 80s output. That's about it. <laughs> 80s yeah. and early 90s output. As we have kind of come to see, I mean, this is probably true for most directors, but seemingly especially for female directors of this time, they can maybe hit big, have that um, momentum for like two, three movies, and then kind of like just drop off the map and are not really given a whole lot more opportunities afterwards. That well, feels you know, like what Susan Seidelman's career has been like. Not that she's had... Like she's done movies. She did one in 2017 or something yeah, like that. So she's still here flashes. and doing stuff. Uh, I think, I mean, you know, it's chicken egg. It's hard because we are not cultural historians, but there are two forces. Just thinking about 48 Hours, mm. you know, we have this film that's such a big hit, even though that director doesn't really make a huge movie afterwards either. But that movie has zero female voice in it. Sure. And so you have these great female directors. Um, they, maybe they just don't have an audience, you know, it, it's, it may not necessarily just also like, there's definitely a gender problem in Hollywood, but you know, if people don't go to pay movies to watch, um, you know, strong female characters have to figure out how they fit into society, <laughs> then nobody's gonna give them money to make the next film. So Perhaps. It's, I think it's a weird thing. Yeah. I mean, we obviously are probably the wrong people to, to broach that in, subject in particular, but I think it always comes down to, is it that there's no audience for it or is it that the audience doesn't know about the movie? I think those are two separate issues that can happen because there are women directors even nowadays who are doing really well, leaning into what they find interesting. I guess you could say, yes, there's stronger female characters in their movies, but that's not really what the movie is about either. And I'm thinking yeah. about for like Catherine Bigelow is probably the biggest example of that, right? Point Break, Zero Dark Thirty, The Hurt Locker, that kind of stuff. Some of those very male-dominated films, but really from a woman's point of view. And I think maybe that's an in for a lot of people into those films. But then you have like Greta Gerwig, who's doing Lady Bird, which I think is great, which is, yes, strong female characters, but it's really a movie about a mother and daughter's relationship. That's what that movie is about. Um, And we'll see what her Barbie movie is, I guess, when that releases next year. Oh, she's doing Barbie? Yeah. I I mean, I... (laughs) It's hard. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's not just that we're not women, so we shouldn't have a vote. I, you know, there are so much, there are so many divisive opinions and perspectives within genders and cross genders, especially now that we're understanding that gender is a construct. So I, I don't think we don't get an opinion. I just think it's hard. It's too broad a brush. So if you compare Susan Seidelman or uh, what was her name? Losing Ground? Uh, shit. Kathleen Collins. Kathleen Collins. Uh, versus a Kathleen, uh, uh, Catherine Bigelow or, um, you know, Jane Campion. I mean, they're all Jane different Campion, human yeah. be- beings and they've made a variety of different films. And- well, I, and I think that's the thing that maybe I'm, I'm trying to communicate is that we don't necessarily compare 
all male directors to all other male directors, no. right? They get to have a unique voice, like a Wes Anderson. Oh, that's a Wes Anderson thing. That's a Martin Scorsese thing. That's a Spielberg thing. But we, we don't necessarily be like, but why isn't Wes Anderson doing this? Whereas like, well, all female directors have to be compared to all other female directors. And it feels weird when they all have their own points of view. A Jane Campion movie is a fundamentally different thing than a Catherine Bigelow movie. They have two yes. very separate points of view. Yeah, yeah. Or Penny Marshall film. I, you know, Penny I, Marshall, I think... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a tough thing. I do think that even when a man or a, or an LGBTQ right. you know director sticks to a very strong point, you're playing to a very small audience. So this is not just a women. I mean, not that we've seen Smithereens yet, but this is not a film that's marketed at the type of women that are going to pay to watch uh, Olivia Newton John sing physical. Those are right. fundamentally different yeah, yeah, groups. Yeah. Um, so if we're going to ask who are the audience that are going to watch a low budget. Uh, essentially quasi-feminist treaties on trying to survive in New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's a tiny, tiny pocket of people. Even right. Desperately Seeking Susan is not really designed for popular consumption. It's it's really, like, there's a reason why nobody particularly talks about that movie anymore. So Maybe, but it was, I will, I will just push back this slightly. It was a hit when it came out. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. But was that because of Madonna or was it because of the film? Right. Yes. That's a I tough would, one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think you're wrong in that. I think the Madonna thing probably played a factor in that. Yeah. If, if Like Virgin came out after that film had finished, that movie mm -hmm. would have made no, in my opinion. I mean, there's a lot of good up and coming actors in that, but mm -hmm. I don't see that being commercially. Anyways, we're belaboring this point, I suppose, but uh, it's fascinating to think about. When we're forced to, on this podcast, stick to a very specific year, what I find is fascinating is those different niches you start to see pop mm -hmm. up. You're right. We're going to have the broadly popular uh, big movies that come out, like your ETs or something like that, right? Good. Like the whole family can basically come in and grab onto yeah. something within that movie. Yeah. And then you have this, which is like, okay, first and foremost, it is a it's a film starring a woman, which unfortunately in the eighties especially was like, well, that's a hard sell right there. And then beyond that, it's very low budget. And then on top of that, it's about like this punk scene in, in, in New York City specifically. So you're like you're like knocking off people that might even be willing to try that's your right. movie down and down and down and down. Yeah. Until it's like, well, hopefully the 10,000 people that are going to love this movie can find this movie. And you're not selling it by saying it debuted at Cannes. Nobody gives a shit, no, especially yeah. in 82. Nobody gives a fuck about France, right? You know? <laughs> uh, so it's it's just an interesting pocket. If this movie, I will talk about it at the end, but if this movie is released now, it would find a broader audience. Yeah, I, for I agree sure. with that. Yes. Yeah. Anyways. Well, let's, let's do on. that then. Let's <laughs> go for a quick break. We'll thank some sponsors. And then when we come back, we'll be talking a little bit more about Smithereens. I really do wish I could like pull off that look of like the sunglasses and the red high tops. Oh, these are my sunglasses. Yeah. Yeah. I'm saying I wish I could pull off no, that I didn't, look. No, I didn't take them. Yeah. Okay. Are, it's yeah. totally yours. To, I, mean, I totally brought, bought them. I brought these. Why uh, is the price tag still on them then? No, I, I, it's uh, just a hip. It's just a hip. That's what you do when you're hip. You know, you it's just like there's people it. who wear the hats and don't ever take the sticker off. That's yeah. the thing. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's cool. That's why on my TV, I still have the plastic <laughs> on the front of it. Never take it off. That used to be a big stereotype with Asian people. They wrap their uh, remote controls. Well, that's just good sense. Nothing gets into the crevices. <laughs> well, it depends on whether you want something in your crevice or not. <laughs> well, yeah, well, 
We can talk about my dating life here later on, Dave. But uh, Colin Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. Uh, I get to talk to you about ATB this week. Ooh. Let me close out all of these tabs so it's easier for me to navigate. That's a phone company, right? It is a bank, Dave. Ah, right. Not AT&T. A provincially run bank. But specifically, I want to talk about ATB Cares. So with ATB Cares, giving is easy. Donate through ATB Cares and ATB will match 20% of every dollar donated to an eligible Albertan charity, maximizing the impact of your donation. You can visit atbcares.com to choose your cause and donate today. 20 points, man. That's that's not a small that's not a small percentage. That's not. If I was it's a like bank. if I paid a dollar, you could also take twenty pennies from that give a penny leave a penny <laughs> jar. Yeah, so I'd be like two percent. I'll give you two. <laughs> Our second sponsor, Kyle, is Record Scratch. Sorry, that isn't the ad read that we were supposed to read this week. Dave, what are we actually talking about here this week? Oh, yours is fine and mine isn't. Correct. Fucking asshole. <laughs> All right. Our second sponsor is Telus Story Hive. And Kyle, let me tell you what's new. With the Story Hive this uh, month, with May, yeah, this month, they are calling on all new and emerging creators in BC and Alberta. Mm-hmm. Tell a Story Hive's All Access Documentary Edition is funding 40 creators with $20,000 each in production funding, mentorship, training, and distribution on Telus Optic TV. I feel like this is the one we applied to and got denied. Is that correct, Kyle? Could be. Who Pitch knows? We, any uh... documentary idea that you're passionate about. <laughs> And you could be in the running to join the StoryHive community. Apply. No, this is a different one. Apply by May 30th at storyhive.com slash apply. Kyle, what would you make a documentary about? Following you around for a week might be a fascinating exploration into a man who uh, hates everything and judges everybody for it. So mm, uh, Quietly. Plus, you carry around that like like 12 inch television that big pink furry jacket i think you're just an interesting character to follow around you know what i love about those portable tvs they were actually kind of light because there probably wasn't any glass in them but the ones that were like the crt tvs in the home mm-hmm. those things weighed like oh, yeah, 60 to 120 could, like, pounds build muscle oh, mass with those things we had one at the uh, one of our yeah in our house in scarborough Helen and i when we got rid of it for our first flat screen it took me, my brother, and maybe even Helen helped a bit because it was like a maybe a 30 inch and mm-hmm. the glass had to be, you know, 28 of those inches. It was so heavy. There was this moment in high school where they were getting rid of a bunch of computer monitors. Ooh, those and so I was tasked too. with this other kid to go and this is totally not e- ecologically friendly, but uh, just to toss them into the dumpster. That's what so you did. Yeah. It's garbage. We got to the end. It's like, I, let's try and like break the screen on one of these just because we can't and so we kept dropping it and smashing it and throwing it could not break that glass i'm like jesus this is indestructible it is absolutely indestructible people don't realize i mean you know imax for example are not light but those crt monitors you had to carry holding the glass to your torso because they are so front heavy (laughs) yeah there's so much weight front heavy wow is that bragging actually i don't know are you talking about I'm talking about my balls, Dave. <laughs> All right. We have watched the movie Smithereens. Dave, here's what we need to do first. If someone came up to you, some 
unknown person and they just wanted to strike up a conversation. They right. walk up to you and they're like, I've heard about this movie called Smithereens from 1982. Mm-hmm. What's it about? How would you answer that question? Yeah, I don't know. As, uh, as far as plot goes, what, is, what, what happens in the plot? I guess, uh, yeah, that's a tough one, eh, Kyle? What's, what is mm-hmm. the plot of this film? I guess I would say a uh, an eccentric young woman surviving in New York City tries to find her way. I don't know. Is that mm-hmm. right? Tries to find tries to find where she fits in in a new evolving culture. I, I, actually, that part's implied. So just tries to find out where she fits in in mm-hmm. the urban landscape of a broken city. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. I'm interested to, to know, what did you think about the movie? Actually, I actually liked it. I mean, I, oh, I, uh, I am actually honestly very surprised to hear you say this because it seems why. to take a check a lot of boxes of the movies that you normally don't like. I don't know if that's true. We'll talk about that. I think that's more interesting because you text me before I started watching this on the assumption, on the presumption, mm-hmm. Kyle, presumptive, uh, that I would not like this. You know, it's, it's definitely, it's low budge, but it's not yeah. actually, it's actually acted pretty well for such a low budge film. I actually kind of enjoyed watching it. I think my, urban inner city uh, roots kick in a little bit with the uh, texture of the Mm -hmm. film. You know, I never lived so derelict, but I know and have visited people who did. And uh, a lot of old New York is reminiscent of uh, older parts of Toronto. So watching her kind of crawl around the seedy underbelly is already better than watching a bunch of uh, elastic band twanging country folk in, uh, Uh in a backwater place just staring into nothingness because that's american culture so i do like uh, and we're kind of alluding to this it's not the female gaze we're not talking about sex i suppose but uh, i like the female perspective in this because the female characters are not they're not pretty right they're Mm. dirty they're broken it's in a survival mode there isn't something particularly attractive but they're still so compelling like i want to follow this insane woman and figure out whether she's going to die because <laughs> she does not make a single correct decision uh, in it. So the narrative is fun. And, you know, and overall, it's not a great movie in a commercial sense. There's a reason why it's famous for Ken and not the box right. office. But yeah, I liked it. I um, right. I think people should watch it. It's There's a reason why it's on Criterion. Yeah, it's on the, it's on the Criterion channel. So you can definitely check it out if you uh, subscribe to that. Or you can buy the physical copy because it is part of their collection if you really wanted to. This is an interesting film, I have to say. I mean, to ruin some of the backstory. Once I read this, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Because it's not really an adaptation of, but it is greatly influenced by... Knights of Kiberia, specifically. It's called out by the creators, the writers, and the directors. Like, that was kind of their uh, template. Mm-hmm. They even dress her like that character from that movie. It's interesting that we watched that here, you know, whatever it was, a couple of years ago. In Knights of Kiberia, of course, it's a prostitute trying to break free and find a wealthy man. Whereas in this one, it's, it doesn't work out. <laughs> it doesn't work out very well. And in this one, it's, yeah, it's Swear kind alert. of this yeah. single woman in New York City trying to basically write on the coattails of a band to kind of find fame and fortune, that sort mm. of thing. I think that's compelling. I think the in, most interesting part of this entire movie is that conflict that she finds herself in, which is like, I am a city person, so I know it really well, and I want to find success here, even if I have to be in a relationship that is not good for me, versus probably finding a lot more... I don't know what the term is, like love or 
a, a more stable relationship by going to a smaller town or less urban area, but I won't feel like I've actually made it or accomplished anything in my life. Like that seems to be the the conflict that she has. Like, do I go with this guy in a van who does treat me, who's a nice guy who's treating me well versus this guy who is not a nice person, very much of a jerk, but I get to still live in the city. That was, I thought, was the more interesting portion of the movie of her conflict there. It's interesting, the, I hear you say you like the acting in this, because I thought outside of Susan Berman, I thought everyone else was actually pretty terrible. <laughs> I didn't actually like them very much at all. And I think that hurts some of the more poignant scenes where I'm just like, oh, if you had like a, just a bit of a better actor in this, I think this moment would land a little bit better. But she is so compelling that, yeah, I was kind of carried along throughout this entire movie. Yes, low budget, um, maybe a bit meandering in, in places, but I found her so engaging that I didn't totally care about that. And I like seeing some of like the, I guess, later punk scene in like the late 70s, early 80s inside of this, the grungy New York before it got cleaned up. So all of that was was fascinating to me, kind of on like a, a documentary type level. But I, I don't know, I kind of left this feeling a little bit more uh, medium on it rather than like super in love with it or... Right. And dislike with it like I, I i it's one of those films where i feel like yeah i can understand why a this might be important or kind of the evolution of a director going on to be given more stuff to do or, and that kind of thing yeah i don't know <laughs> i i don't know i i i, I honestly sorry this movie thing i was gonna love it and i ended up being like yeah it was fine it was fine yeah i mean i'm interested to know what movies you're thinking of when you thought I would hate it. That might be an interesting comparison. But I don't think necessarily in like themes, but specifically on tone and how it's filmed. This is like a Minion Moskowitz. This is like Knights of Kiberia. This is like, gosh, there's that other low budget film that we watched that I'm now blanking on. Anyways, all these movies that you were either like, I didn't like this at all or like, I'm going to forget about this in like two days. Well, so nothing that you were super enthusiastic about. Minnie Moskowitz is, I mean, they're different in that the perspective in Minnie Moskowitz, I think, is cruel. And I sure. think that Knights of Kiberia, I think we both at least agreed on one point. I think my problem with it is not uh, what, I can't remember her name. I mean, she's the main actress. Ju Julieta Messina. Messina. Uh, she's fantastic in it. The problem with that movie for me and this Italian new wave is is the meandering. It almost feels like it's not going to go anywhere. And when the but final point- you don't think that in, happens in this movie too? I feel like that is what that describes this movie. Well, this movie's quicker, right? Like how long was Knights of Kiberia? It was over yeah, two, two hours. hours. Yeah, two hours. Yeah. So this one hits a little quicker and uh, you're right. I mean, this is not a perfect film. <laughs> right. Um, the one difference I think between- uh, like how you're reading this and why I perhaps the acting was more important, I think, for you is that, you know, this idea that she's actually aware that there's a right and wrong decision, I I'll push back a little on that. I think what makes her so fascinating is that it's compulsive for her. And I think that she's not from the big city. She's from a small town in mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. You know, this is something where uh, she's willing to sacrifice her family, her, her, not lineage, but her heritage, whatever, because she has this compulsion that she is a New York big city person when she's clearly not. She's eating up and destroying everything around her to chase this dream, whatever that is. It's not even explicitly stated. All we know is that she's living uh, as a, you know, what do you call them? Begging on the streets yeah. to survive in this shit. Um, yeah, a squatter. Squatter. Basically her, like, squatter. Yeah. And then she looks at LA 
Not because she doesn't even talk about what she's going to do in LA or Hollywood. She just is trying to get to the next sort of uh, hot spot. I think that's kind of an interesting thing to watch because you know the whole time that's not going to work out. <laughs> well, uh, like the guy lives in a van. He's not he's not a knight in shining armor. He's he's kind of psychopathic. I mean, it starts off with him stalking her because, you know, he's she smiled at him in a subway. Like, <laughs> I never get this feeling like he's supposed to be a romantic lead. I think he's also... Uh, sort of the inverse of her. He lives in his own pocket where he believes that something good is supposed to happen out of everything when, you know, he's he's sitting in a parking lot in a broken van uh, hanging out with, uh, you know, strung out prostitutes. He's not, I didn't just, I just kind of felt differently about everybody's position. So I wouldn't say that they're good actors. I just felt like it fit the tone of the film. Nothing about this guy sounds like a red flag to me. I also agree that she is not aware of the choice she's actually making. And again, I think that's what makes her an interesting character, right? Where you're, they're not self-aware enough to understand that, oh, obviously this is what you're, you're struggling with, but you don't have the, the language or the, um, yeah, the self-awareness to actually describe that for yourself. But there is, there is that conversation where she mentions about like, well, if I go with this guy, if I go in his van out of New York and go and live this life. It's a great some, soundbite. <laughs> If I go with go, this guy and get on this van, van and <laughs> go off in this, whatever, like small town America, yeah. there is this feeling that she would have failed. Like she would have, she would have actually failed in life because she didn't achieve what she thinks she should be achieving as a big city person. And I, I actually really empathize with that. I have very much those same thoughts all the time, whether it's ever going to work out for me or not, who knows? But there is always that struggle, which is like, I feel like there's there's more to this than what I currently have. And I'm, I'm going to be happy when I achieve this thing. Probably won't be. But still, that is what is the driving force for her is like, I know that I'm supposed to have more in this life than what I currently have. And the squalor that I currently sit in, this is this rocker dude is who I'm going to like ride the coattails on to get to that next level. Um, I, well, I, I don't know. I versus feel like the, this other person that's in my life. There's a capitalist tone to what you're describing that I think is missing from this film. I don't think she's chasing success as we would define it in American context. That's why I use the word compulsion. I think she just needs to feed off the next adventure. She's not talking mm. about riding a limo or becoming famous. She uses those that language to get in with a certain crowd that she's attracted to. But she's, in my opinion, when I'm watching this movie, that character seems to just be attracted to drama more than an idealism of where I ought to be. It would be different. I'm trying to think of another... I mean, there's so many movies where it's more about like essentially what we call gold digging now, where, you know, they believe they deserve more, you know, whether they do or not, because they should have a bigger house or... But that's not, I think, how her character frames her success. I think there's just this weird idea of being mixed up in a very chaotic lifestyle, like an egoist lifestyle, rather than anything to do with uh, success. Like when you describe yourself, I don't characterize you this way. I don't think you're looking for drama or to be mixed up no. in 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 this sort of like chaotic, frenetic thing, right? I think for you, you want actually the value of stability, which is the inverse of what this woman is chasing. It's why she makes these brutal decisions, right? I mean, even when she's going to have sex with this punk rock star, she's not in love with him. It's no. entirely out of this compulsion. It's just, a calculation. Yeah. yeah. But we don't know why. And I don't think she does either. It's fascinating. You know, she never gives it up. You know, there's another woman walks in the room. She's like, 
push back on it. And then when she fails, she crawls back to this van. It's weird. So it makes it so interesting well, to watch. She's, yeah. She's the epitome <laughs> of a hustler, right? In, in that she like, she's always working every angle. It's like, okay, well this failed. I have this to fall back on. I'm going to leave my stuff here. I don't even think it's intentional. I think it's just, she's like a cat. This is why I text you. I, I think she strikes me more like a cat spirit. And now <laughs> if you look at wild feral cats, if the food is out, they'll appear. Mm-hmm. And when the food's gone, they disappear. It's why Right. We have this idea of a cat and dog person. If you own a cat, when they're done with you petting it, they fuck off. And they're just like, don't touch me. I'll scratch you. Whereas dogs are the inverse of that. They just, they need a Give lot of attention. attention. So there's something about that. There's something, in my opinion, feral and feline about her character. I think that's a good, actually, that's a good descriptor. I just, there's a creativity to her, though, that I think is waiting to mm-hmm. be explored. Like, whether it's destructive or not, she's like, I think she is fashion conscious. She's trying to exude a specific... I don't know. Right. Yeah, the Attract a certain idea when she's walking yeah. down the street with her pink furry coats and the eyeglasses she steals. And then she's like literally pasting her own photo up on the, yeah. the subway walls and stuff like that. Like, I think she does want to be seen. She does want to be heard. But I don't know in what capacity she's trying to be seen. Mm-hmm. She's doing like this random graffiti sometimes, which isn't all that mm-hmm. great. But she's still doing the random yeah. graffiti. New York in the 80s. It's fine. Right. <laughs> I think there's something there. I think she doesn't know how to express herself fully. And so maybe the, the, the punk rock dude who is no longer in that punk rock band is like, well, maybe, maybe this is the guy who can mm-hmm. help me figure that out. But I, I agree with you. I don't think she, lo- I don't think she, she likes either of the two guys really. Mm-hmm. They are opportunities and they are that food that presents itself when she needs it. And then she's going to be off to the next thing when she, when she finds it. So to be honest with you, this is the character if this is such a dumb thing if there was a sequel that was made of smithereens now i would actually be fascinated to know what that character became right what does that character do in 20 years from now when she can't just prowl the streets anymore yeah she's probably dead but um it may be impossible it'll be interesting to see how this could be remade this is the i think this is the other reason why i actually like this movie you know we're actually talking about the movie and the themes of the movie as opposed to getting into the gossipy thing. We haven't even talked mm-hmm. about these people involved yet. Uh, there's something intellectual underneath this, whether it's intentional or just as a result, a reflection of um, of us, you know, Susan Seidelman and, and her peers uh, at, the, at the era or something happening in the American New Wave in the 80s. We're seeing that with the more indie films in general. We saw this losing ground. That is not a particularly well-crafted film in a commercial sense, but you can tell, um, you know, it comes from a thoughtful perspective. And I yeah. think this one is the same thing where, you know, I'm swept well, I, up yeah. asking myself. Yeah. I, I will say, I, I think I like this movie. Well, I, I know I like this movie better than I liked Losing Ground just as a pure film. Mm-hmm. I do think it is important, actually, that it's, it's a woman that we're following around to throw the oh, gender yeah. thing into this equation. I think there's all of these forces that were both intentional and i think unintentionally poignant now looking back on it 40 years which is like we're talking about the waning days of the punk movement it's right before new york starts to kind of get cleaned up well actually it would probably be a bit more of a decade from now before the new york really starts to get cleaned up we're just on the cusp of like the aids crisis like really blowing apart so that would like destroy a lot of those like subcultures that are being featured here in this film so it does feel like this last gasp of of a world that does not really exist anymore uh, with a person who because of their gender probably feels i don't know looked down upon anyways trying to find 
her place in it and wandering around and kind of being used and abused by everyone that she runs into it. Although, I don't know, there's there's something there, I think, with the fact that there's all these things, intentional and non-intentional, that kind of aid this movie's resonance for me. You know what I think? I was just thinking about this. I, what I felt as a feminist tone, I think, is that the main character, I can't remember her name now, but Susan Berman's Ren. character- Ren, right? Like a bird. She's never a victim in this, even though she lives this tragic storyline because everything is essentially self-inflicted. So one of the narratives we see, even when there's a female protagonist, is that the world is besetting on them. You know, they're mm -hmm. trying to strive through the oppression of whatever, male dominance or hierarchy or their upbringing, you know, and there's lots of great stories about that. And here we have uh, a woman who has trapped herself, essentially, struggles against herself, and uh, in the end is kind of back at square one, maybe even, you know, worse than she was off at the beginning. So it's fun to watch. What is interesting is how, except with, I think it's her sister, it's her sister that she talks with, right? Yeah, yeah. Except for the, her sister, I find like every other female character that she comes into with, she immediately is trying to be better than them mm -hmm. inside the room and pushing them down or trying to like force self or get into a fight with them literally in, in a little cafe. Yeah. She wants to be the one that they're thinking of. She wants to be in that position of power, which is why I think that one of the best scenes of this movie is very much near the end with the blonde woman and they're sharing that cigarette on mm -hmm. the uh, mm -hmm. on the stairwell. Very French. Yeah. Very French. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, he's he's my husband. We actually married. And she's like, oh, I didn't even I didn't even realize it was that serious. I hadn't even considered you as another person, right? Yeah. Um, and he both he screwed us both over in this case. So now I have to feel a bit of empathy for you when I was trying to hold you down. What an interesting sort of uh, quick reflection on the blonde woman is the female who's a victim. And then we have uh, Ren, who's like this aggressor, and then they share this moment. I think, uh, you know, when I turn this film off, right, I, I, mm -hmm. I uh, quit the app, the Criterion app. What I liked about this is, is this, I, I was thinking a lot about how I was going to talk about this instead of just either being like fanboy excited, you know, like when we watched, um, I don't know, uh, E.T., where you're just right. like, yeah, what a great film, or being like, so angry that I had to sit through Minya Moskovich or something like that. This thing just had me sitting in my head, which I like, um, which is why I think it, it's twisting into the positive. Uh, losing ground, mm -hmm. same thing. It is pretentious, but you know, when you finish it, you have to think about what- You what, do have to grapple with it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's good. It's hilarious that you think somebody else is pretentious. Well, let's do some backstory here then. So this movie opened up on September 11th. 1982. Mm, ominous. It is currently rated 3.6 out of 5 on Letterboxd, a 6.8 on IMDb, has a 72 on Metacritic, and on Rotten Tomatoes, from 11 critics, it has 100%, and from 500 users, it has a 60%. It is available on DVD or Blu-ray, you can buy or rent it on iTunes or YouTube, and currently it is streaming on the Criterion channel. This movie has no information about how much money it made. I cannot imagine it made very much, to be no. honest. But It did have a $40,000 budget. Yes, well, I'm going to get to that. Amazing. So the plot description to this movie is, a talent-challenged girl tries to promote herself to stardom in New York's waning punk music world. Dave, I'm now grabbing my little sportsman's jacket. I have the long microphone that Bob Barker used to use, and it's time to play Guess, Guess That, that Tag. tag. So when you go into a movie theater, oftentimes in the lobby, you'll see this string of posters of upcoming films. And on those posters, there's often a tagline, a phrase that is helping you entice you into the movie if the picture is not selling it by itself. And so 
I'm going to ask you this. What do you think is the actual tagline? One of these is true, and the other two are things that I completely made up out of my own mind. So is it, she was a legend in her own mind? Is it, she's going to blow everything to smithereens? Or is it, a punk, a woman, and a dreamer? Wow. Uh, I don't know. You're getting better at these. You're trying to get away from a single tone. I'm going to go with A. She was a legend in her own mind? Yeah, just as a guess. I, I have nothing. You are correct. That is actually... Yes. I'm back, baby. Is. I wrote this uh, document maybe up a week ago, so I actually just quickly look it up. Like, I actually don't remember which one of these is the real <laughs> one. <laughs> the yes, second one is a, definitely you, because you're yeah. trying to make a, a, a semi-pun with it. The third one, though, is like, if Hollywood had that... It would probably mm. go that way, but I was gonna. I was waiting for you to say there's no tagline because this is a super yeah, indie no, film. There, but. there was. It stars Susan Berman as Ren, Brad Rin as Paul, and Richard Hell. That is correct. Richard Hell as Eric. Mm. I didn't actually do a deep dive into this. Richard Hell was actually in a band, was he not? Not just a band. He's considered apparently like the forefather of punk music in general. Right. Right, okay. His his story is crazy. Because what band was he in? He was in four. The okay. one, I think that he gets some of his most, his biggest prominence is uh, his final band is called Richard Hell and the Voidoids. But um, I think television and the Heartbreakers were also pretty big at the time. I am not a punk guy, so I can't verify oh. any of this. Yeah, I'm not super into that. Well, the weird thing is I love punk music, but I don't know any of the people who actually sing punk music. I just That's put it on thing. shuffle and listen to it. So um, I mean, just uh, quickly, it's pretty interesting. He's uh, His dad was an experimental psychologist. So that already okay. tells you. Was that but he, he passed away when he was seven. He went to school, ran away from school with his friend and was arrested for arson and vandalism. So this is when he's a teenager. Nice, so he's nice. already, you know, you get a tone. And he's in four bands between 72 and 82. So you already know, I mean, this guy is not mm. stable. You know, right. he's all over the place. I will say, if I was alive and of age in 1982... You would try to kiss him? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> exactly my type, yeah. I'm trying to remember the song, but at any rate, he, he was a writer Although first. washing my hair with beer, I would probably maybe draw that the That was so gross. It, but... Yeah, apparently that's the thing. He might just, you want to smell like stale beer all the time. Yeah. At any rate, uh, I think it was television. He was friends with the radio show producer, maybe, and one of their songs got into the radio, and that's has mm -hmm. been cited as a major inspiration for what would come as the most commercially popular punk bands in the next right. 10 years. So he is informally, you know, apparently respected as this really big deal. He's still alive, of course, but he stopped making music in 82. So this is around mm -hmm. the end of his music career. Uh, and now he's he's a full-on writer. So I don't know anything about him other than the Wikipedia, okay. but he sounds like a big deal. Pretty fascinating. And then did, did Brad do anything after no. that? I don't think he did. And Susan Berman oh. didn't really do much of anything after this the only th The quick thing about Brad Rin is that after this, he made a film called Perfect Strangers. Right, which, which is, has nothing to do with the TV no. show. <laughs> no Bartakamus. It's no. actually a psychological thriller that actually looks pretty good. Do you know okay. what it's about? No. Apparently, it's about a hitman who tries to seduce the mother of a child who witnessed his recent kill. Oh, my God. So, he's murdering a dude. such an 80s press. <laughs> so good, right? And then it's this so kid good, sees yeah. him, he's like, oh, to cover this up, I'm now going to seduce his, his mom. mom. <laughs> yeah. 
That's perfect. <laughs> that looks pretty good. I would totally uh, put that in the What year VCR. did that come out? 84 or something? Um, 87. Well, if we ever do 87, we'll do Perfect Strangers. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you can't find it. Susan Berman is fascinating. So if you try to Google her, you get a different Susan Berman, a famous one, who is the daughter of a mafia boss who was murdered. And she was um what is it? A journalist and an author. If you try to find actual Susan Berman, you likely, and I'm pretty sure I have, get a virus on your computer because it's just the shadiest, shadiest websites, you know, that are trying to load all kinds of weird stuff. So there's not a lot. Why about would Susan all things would be like, oh, yes, yeah, so alert people here. We'll talk about Susan Berman. So weird. And that will right? make sure we get the virus on their computer. The first virus I ever wrote was to lure fans of Judge Reinhold. Don't judge me. What's interesting about the wrong Susan Berman is she's the one that was murdered. And uh, 10 years later, Robert Durst was convicted. That was a big deal in the yeah, news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, she's the victim of that, which oh, is why she's that. all over okay, Google. Okay, okay. okay so, so that's a thing. Oh, I'm putting that in for a reason because uh, that's going to come up later. At any rate, uh, this Susan Berman, the actress, the only other credit, which is super weird, she was in... Uh, a film making Mr. Right, and then she was Bikini Girl number one in Bikini Girl Car Wash Company two. There's a sequel. Mm-hmm. I've actually watched a little bit of the trailer. I'm pretty sure it's God. softcore porn, and uh, she was in there like '93. I well, what, what's so I don't random? Know. This is again just the weirdness of Hollywood. After after this movie, I would be like, why isn't she getting more? She's offers? good in it. I know. Yeah, I don't know. That's Maybe weird. she's uh, so prickly weird. in demeanor. I have no idea. I know by watching the forty-minute documentary on on Criterion that like she was a stage actress. I think she did go back to the stage afterwards. I think she's a she was she's a professor a too. At yeah, some I think time. she's a teacher. Yeah. yeah. Well, the cinematography was by someone named Corinne L. Cadam. They didn't do very much. They did like four films, but their top four in IMDb is this movie as cinematographer, a movie called Wild Style, also in 1982 as a camera operator. Is that the breakdancing movie? Or could be, I don't know. But they were the camera operator on that. They do, in 1978, they were an actress in The Foreigner, and then they did a short film as cinematographer called Yours Truly, Andrea G. Stern, which was the short film that Seilman made before this movie. So that's the only stuff that this person ever did. Incidentally, Jackie mm-hmm. Chan's film, The Foreigner, is fantastic. Yeah. You should watch okay. it. That's a good I'll, movie. I'll take your take your word for it. So here's some of the backstory that uh, people should know. Susan Silomon uh, is in school to be a fashion designer. And on a whim, she takes this film appreciation class where she's introduced to some of the bigger European filmmakers like Fellini, Godard, Truffaut. And she's like, whoa, this is blowing my mind that film can do this type of stuff. Remember, this is like the neo-realism period that we saw in Knights of Kibiri, which is like inexperienced actors, shooting in real locations, using improv, that kind of stuff. So she switches majors and she is one of like a handful of women in this class uh, and perseveres. She has this idea for the character of Ren. That's what it starts off with. It's just that character that she's in her mind. Uh, but doesn't really have any story to go with it. So she reaches out to this guy, Ron Neiswanner. Oh, I forgot to actually put this up. This movie is written by Ron Neiswanner and Peter Askin with a story by Susan Seilman and Ron Neiswanner, directed by Susan Seilman. So since you brought that up, can I quickly interject something? Yes. Peter Askin, his wife is the uh, sister of Robert Durst. Mm. So they're all interrelated. How fucking weird is that? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. So, yeah, it turns out that this random Google search that I had, the mm-hmm. killer is actually married to the writer of this film, that killer sister. Good Lord. Okay. Well, 
There yeah. you go. Yeah. Yeah, but it was uh, Ron Neiswinder that... Uh, yeah, he goes on to write Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah. Who comes in, helps write this movie. I think they knew each other in school. I think that's why she reaches out to him. Mm-hmm. Regardless, their budget is super low. We are talking $40,000 low. Like, that's what they make this movie for. They put out a casting call for young actors or student actors, and Susan Berman, the lead, had initially come to New York to become a lawyer. She's in an NYU. She says after, like, a couple of classes, she's like... I hate this. I absolutely hate this. And on this total fluke, she's in this coffee shop looking at the postings up on the wall. You remember those postings that would happen up on the wall? They like rip a tag off for. She's approached by this other guy who's just in the coffee shop who is the head of the experimental theater group at NYU and asks her to come on audition for him, which is how she starts acting. So she goes, does all this theater stuff. uh, And then when this movie is being cast, she goes in and auditions for it. As we've mentioned, um, unsurprisingly, Simon bases this character off of the Giulietta Messina character in Knights of Kiberia, puts her in similar outfits because she has that fashion design background. She was very conscious of how she wanted things to look. And a punk, the punk scene was becoming a bigger subculture that she loved. She was in those clubs and in those uh, in that orbit of those people, specifically the Peppermint Lounge, which shows up in this movie, which it was the top hangout spot for punks in the late 70s and early 80s. Although it would close down in like four years after this movie came out, it didn't last much longer. So they start filming it with what they have in the script. They're doing some improv scenes and stuff like that before they start shooting. And there's a freak accident that actually happens while they're filming this. So they already filmed about two weeks worth of, of footage. And we have the, uh, is it Richard Hell? Yeah. yeah, Richard Hell. The Richard Hell is only going to come in for this one scene. So the direction that Silomon gives is this, is that she tells Richard, whatever you do, you need her to get out of your apartment. That's what you want her to do. And she tells Susan Berman to be like, whatever you do, you do not want to leave this apartment. So those are the, the two opposite directions that they give. Okay, let's run a scene and see what happens. So in this improv, Richard takes her, picks her up, and puts her out on the fire escape and then closes the window. And then she is wanting to, of course, get back and she's running down the fire escape, knocking on windows. And she loses her balance, falls a couple of stories, and shatters her ankle. Wow. Uh, it could have been a lot worse, let's put it that way. But that's what happened. She shatters her ankle. So they have to actually shut down production for six months for her to like rehab this, this ankle injury. But in the meantime, she says, in, in a way, it's a good thing, uh, A, that she didn't die. But B, because they's like, we actually really like this Richard Hell character. We want to expand this and really focus on the punk scene a lot more than what was in the original script. So they rewrite the script while they're shut down. And then they can kind of continue on after she can come back and start filming again. As far as the music goes, she knew that she wanted that sound, that that punk sound coming from the score, uh, but she did not have the budget to go after any big names. So this is when she runs across, uh, I think, an alumni of NYU, Jonathan Demi. So if you don't know that name, he's a, would become a big time director. Silence of the Lambs would be his like big breakthrough. I, I shouldn't say breakthrough. That's the big movie that he does, though, in his career. He was coming off of his first studio-backed film at this point. He had done some independent stuff. He had just come off his first studio back film, and he was friendly with a lot of people in the punk scene. Um, he would actually go on to make a bunch of music videos for the Talking Heads and other other people. Uh, she says she invites him out to a screening, and he does. He loves the movie, and he also agrees with her that he she should have like a really good soundtrack to go along with it. And so he reaches out to a bunch of people that he knows. Eventually, they get in contact with the band called the Feelies. Do you know anything about this band? 
No. Okay. I don't either, but again, a big deal, apparently. Like, just a super big deal in the punk scene. They only last about a decade or so. Is At least in the history of punk music, they are a big, big deal. And they just agree to do it. And I am super uncool for not knowing who they are. They're one of those bands, <laughs> though, that not, like, the... Not broadly popular, but every popular band you know lists them as an influence, mm. right? Like so R.E.M. <laughs> is the big band. It's like, we love the Feelies. And like, I forget what other bands around that time love the Feelies. They were great. That's what made us want to be. The MF Doom of punk, punk music. Yeah. Rapper's rapper. Right. Now, the second stroke of luck came right after this. So, right. So we have Jonathan Demi's support. We get this band to do the, the music for us. She wants to put this into fe- film festivals. And she heard about the Cannes Film Festival uh, and wants to submit it. But and remember, this is $1982. In order to do it, to get like it printed in the right way, the subtitles that you need to send it to film festivals, the actual admission fee, yada, yada, yada. 25 grand is what you, she would have needed to actually enter it into the Cannes Film Festival. She's upset by this because remember that $40,000 that it cost? It's true, but she is out of money and doesn't even have enough money to actually go to the developers, like the people who actually developed the film, to get it out of that place right now. Like it's basically being held hostage because she doesn't have the money to pay them. She's upset by this. Two random guys sitting beside her uh, when she receives this news, she must have been like on a payphone or something like this, just happen to be European film purchasers. And they're like, listen, if you give us the rights to broadcast your film in Europe, we'll give you the 25 grand to submit it to Cannes. And she's like, sure. All right, great. (laughs) And that's literally how it gets to Cannes. Complete. That's how it gets to the Cannes Film Festival. Complete chance that these two guys were sitting at a table next to her when she's freaking out and they agree to do it for her. To be fair, all they said is that they were European film purchasers. Who knows if they actually were. Once it's submitted, another another crazy thing happens because the president of Khan phones her up and says, listen, we had initially placed you in this thing in the festival called the Director Showcase. So like new filmmakers, but they're not in general competition. We can like win the awards from. But he says, I've watched your film and I think it should be in general competition. So how would you feel if we did that? Just put in. The, and she says, yes, great. Which is why it becomes the first United States independent film to be put into the general competition category of the Cannes Film Festival, which is why it gets like a lot of buzz around it and her star kind of rises and why she's even given the opportunity to make Desperately Seeking Susan the next year. That's really what launches her career is because she was she made this like history making thing happen. That's a quick backstory of the film. <laughs> Any Anything you want to add into that? No, I think, uh, you know, one thing I'll just quip about because when did this, this came up a few episodes ago to, I don't remember which actor, oh, is it it Meryl Streep? Anyways, uh, this idea of luck is Mm -hmm. this projection that things you don't deserve happen to you. But I think Mm. it's actually, I mean, she built this thing already. You know, she wasn't just lying down on the floor and somebody's like, here's $40,000, make me a movie. She'd already put this out there. So it's more, what is, what's the term? Manifest destiny. I mean, I think that um, it's important. I mean, manifest destiny is for the U.S. to control of North America, but sure, yes. Is uh, for creatives to understand uh, that just being in front. Of, I mean, when I built that magazine, that's how it happened. I was sitting in a coffee shop and uh, just talking to random people. You know, mm-hmm. you just, if you're just out in front of st- people, I mean, nobody gave me twenty five thousand dollars, but I wasn't looking for well, it. Not yet. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's uh, it's an interesting thing to hear. Well, I mean, sh- I mean, sure. I think. I mean, I would still put luck in that, hey, those guys were sitting next to her when it 
didn't have to be well, those that's two how she guys remembers it. To... I mean, I don't right. know. And she would be in a place where they would be in too, you know. True She's enough. Not... I, I I do agree with your 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 greater point though. Luck is only luck because you do have the backup of mm-hmm. what you've already done, right? Like if someone I don't know, just using us as an example, like because we've done 127 of these shows or something, it's like, hey, we want to fund you now and give you, you know, five grand in episodes. Like, yeah, we've built the infrastructure and already like we're not doing this from scratch or something. That is not a hypothetical. That is uh, right. that is asking. You know, we're That's, asking the yeah, universe. If you want to <laughs> buy us out, we will gladly do it. Uh, um, we need it. Yeah, we need it. Or if it's like you've you've written every day of your life and have now well, constructed a novel and stuff like that and someone just says like yeah i'm gonna take a chance on you it's not really a chance you've put in the work to to make something good when i read murakami's uh half biography about running and writing that's mm-hmm. one thing that i realized i haven't broached which is he when he became a writer he's like i'm quitting all my work and from mm-hmm. now on every day just like a japanese businessman would instead of going to an office i'm gonna write eight hours a day <laughs> Right. You and I tried a writing exercise. We didn't even last five minutes. You know, that that's a level of uh, commitment that I think is fascinating when you <laughs> look at these people that are successful as creatives. The grind. Anything else you want to bring up about the movie? I don't know how you keep Red Converse so clean walking around. Yeah, I know, around. right? Yeah. Love those Red Converse, though. You know, I love the little moments of it, too. Like how she's humiliated by her landlady. You know, they're throwing yeah. her clothes out and they dump a bucket of water. That's, that's such know. a shock moment. And you're like, whoa. And then it's not that offensive because you're like, yeah, maybe she deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> she is an awful tenant. We can agree on that, right? Awful person. Yeah. It is also amazing when you watch good stories, how you can become emotionally invested in bad people. You know, mm-hmm. there's actually not a lot in her moral core. Well, this is my thing. I always push back on this because you always talk about likability. I'm like, I don't really care if the main character is likable or not. I care if they're interesting and I like can, empath- well, I can feel their, their progression throughout the story. Yeah. I mean, they're likable in something other than their moral sure. compass. So, yeah. Interesting. It was interesting to to work through this. Yeah. Here are just some, like, odd stray thoughts I had while watching this movie that I wrote down. Other than, like, I love the grungy look of early New York, of, like, mm-hmm. 80s New York. I would hate to live there. Just putting it out there. I would not want to be in the sea at that time. If they had the uh, theater odor technology, mm-hmm. it would just be raw sewage and human feces for uh, yes. 90 minutes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that they're playing Pac-Man in the movie. It's like, yeah, that's that place is in a very specific time and place that you're no, playing Pac-Man. Not, uh, not any of its sequels. Yeah. I love the reveal of of the Richard Hell's roommate because mm. you don't even think there's another person there. And she walks into the kitchen. She's like, like, what the who fuck? are you? Or it's, like, it's like, I live here. I like, yeah. who are you? Who, like, maybe again, I like to project, gives off strong homosexual vibes to me, yeah. but apparently was not well, characterized in the movie. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, well, he's trying to have sex with a woman. Yeah, the sure. He's thing. trying to bed everybody, but he doesn't. Right. That's true. She uses another man's toothbrush, and oh. I would say absolutely not. I don't care if I've lived with you for 20 years, I'm not oh, using your toothbrush. Oh my God. That is such a, that's such a, I don't know, 80s thing. When, it's just so gross how much, I mean, no, maybe that's loaded, but it is so different what mm-hmm. hygiene meant in different sure. decades. Now, especially because of COVID, we ain't sharing shit. Nobody's going to be right, cross-sharing right. stuff. Like Seinfeld created the double dip. And after that came on that show, people do not dip each, well, try not to dip each other's food. But before that, it was fine. You know, you just, people eating each other's peanut butter with their fingers. It's, it's fucking disgusting, right? But that was normal. Look it off the floor, whatever. 
Yeah. Five second rule. Go Nobody does that there. anymore. Yeah. The lesson is don't put someone else's toothbrush in your mouth. Yeah, it's disgusting. I think ultimately this is what it is for for me as my final stamp on this is that I like a lot of how this movie approaches it. I like her as a central character. Like Ren is such an interesting character to follow around. I do feel that there is a bit too much stasis to some of the characters. Like I, I straight up just don't believe that guy with a broken van would just sit there and wait for a week without a little bit more to do with like understanding like why is he... Why is he just waiting there? Essentially, it's because he wants to be with her. But I'm like, I don't know. I don't, I don't buy that that's enough for him just to sit there and sit there and sit there sort of thing. But overall, I think what we started off with is true. If you have not heard of this movie or you are interested, I definitely would give it a watch. I think it's definitely something, um, as we've seen here, there's a lot of stuff we can delve into and talk about. And the irony of watching a film with a paper-thin male character. <laughs> true, true. Yeah, yeah. Equality for everyone, Dave. Yeah, I think, I mean, I agree with you. I this is by no means, you know, a polished end product. You know, there's mm-hmm. a reason why it was largely forgotten for a while. I, I mean, on top of sexism and, uh, and counterculture stuff. It's good. It's not great. Mm. Uh, and it's important, which makes it great. It's, it, it reminds me a little bit of Sweetback where, or Losing Ground. I mean, Sweetback was the most offensive polarity of this because the film itself is so offensive and weird and difficult to sit right. through. But then when you talk about what Melvin Van Peebles is trying to get at. You can't. You, you could talk about it for five hours if if we wanted to let that go. That could have been such a protracted challenge about our own biases. Losing Ground mm. was very similar where, you know, this existential problem of how one is supposed to act in gender roles is fascinating. And this movie does the same thing. You, you finish it and you're not going to talk to somebody about how great the cinematography is or mm. how, you know, what a great climax. And I'm glad, uh, you know, they saved this alien and he got to go back to his home planet with his dad or whatever, however you want to read that. It is weird that it does do that that pivot of becoming an <laughs> alien movie halfway through. Yeah, It's great. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting movie. Oh, I, before we wrap up here, I think the last thing I wanted to point out, I do also love that scene where the prostitute and the guy in the mm-hmm. van just have that conversation. And she's like, gives, what is it, like a tuna sandwich or whatever she yeah. gives to him? And she's just eating a, a, a single egg yeah. and only half of the egg. She doesn't even eat the whole egg, which yeah. I thought was so funny. You know. Know, you know what I liked about that scene too? It's humanizing the prostitute. You know, mm-hmm. she's completely incapacitated by drugs or alcohol but she's also human she's talking about her mother and getting packed this lunch and in between interspersed offering tricks <laughs> mm-hmm. and then kind of like leaving she's not even disappointed she's just in this weird stupor i think that's fascinating that's something that we won't get a lot in modern cinema in cinema unless the movie's about a prostitute we're not going to see a side mm-hmm. character appear and just be a human being because we don't want to mm. dirty that idea up. So I actually like that scene a lot too. Yeah, this is definitely one of those things I think is it's it's about character. It's not really about plot necessarily. Mm-hmm. Like there is a plot to it. I, I think it's not so plotless. It's, that it's you not an art art film. Yeah. Right. 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 And if you're like me, uh, having going having to go back to your small little town, being like the worst thing that could ever happen to you at uh, it's home. It's oh, home. Give me a break. <laughs> there are worse things, Kyle. No. I don't know. You you're pretty hard on uh, small towns, Dave. You seem to think that they're the worst things I give in the world. You, I give you shit because it's fun, but uh, yeah. you have a family to go back home to. I think you should appreciate that more. <laughs> yeah, but that means I'm not successful, Dave. That's the that's the thing about this movie. It's like that's that's her what she she wants. What success is, I have no idea. So much in her mind, but yeah, that's an I don't know. That's an interesting idea, isn't it? Like leaving somewhere antagonistically as opposed mm-hmm. to opportunistically. So when I left my home, it was that way. Like I had so much hate 
and disdain for what I thought was going on in my life. Over the years, I've learned the, you know, having support of your family is crucial to survival. But there are other people that leave their house because they're just like, oh, I can make it. I'm going to go and I know exactly what my talents are and how I'm going to apply them. So it, it's an interesting uh, discussion, dissertation on stuff like that. Well, I think, I think we've had conversations about this before too, both on and outside of the podcast of there are mentalities you get into of like it's, this is a struggle it's hard like why does everything have to be so difficult and it's like well like you could if you really wanted to let's say just using the united states as the example you could move to like north dakota where like buying a house is super cheap and raise a family there and the cost of living is so much lower but the trade-off is you're living in north dakota and that's yeah. really what you're confronted by. You want to be here and live a certain lifestyle that is just not available over here, even though you'd be probably, quote unquote, happier to be in this situation over here. If there's another thing I've learned about that, that's half a lie, is that if you can't make it where you are, you're likely not going to make it where you go. So, <laughs> you know, this idea that, oh, I'm in this city and... uh it's because the city is so hard, but I'm going to go to this prairie town and life's going to be easier. You're still the same person. And, you know, when I meet folks that I joke about in small towns or farmers and stuff, that is not an easy lifestyle. No. <laughs> yeah. You know, you got to have a lot of uh, discipline and, and moxie to survive in small towns as well. This is what, I think this is why I don't like small town films that idealize this idea of getting to sit around on an acreage and you're not doing anything. You know, if I watch a movie in a small town where they're sweating because it's actually hard to live, even if you can buy a house for 10,000 bucks, how do you make $10,000 in a small town? There's no economy. It's it's all scales, right? You have to you have to shuck a lot of corn, Dave. <laughs> if you know what I mean. We're done here. All right. Well, the machine said that we do have to wrap this up here. So first off, we're going to go into Critics' Choice. This is the part of the show where normally we discover what the critics thought of the film at the time it was released. Um, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of uh, critics reviews from the time for this film. So I'm going to present day because uh, Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael both did not review this film. A uh, user that I follow on Letterboxd, Brat who I am a big fan of. She wrote this review. This is the movie I've been looking for. Susan Seidelman's Smithereens feels cut from a similar cloth as Barbara Loden's Wanda, but smeared in that unmistakable scuzz of New York City, while Loden's Wanda is soft-spoken and diaphanous. Seidelman's wow. Ren is spunky, venomous, and brusque, getting in physical fights, carelessly lying as she plods through the city in her crimson high tops, and mistreating the one guy who's nice to her. From now on, this fan is always going to remind you of me, she spits at him. Smithereens is about pathetic glamour, about ego so blinding that you miss the good that's right in front of you, about being so relentlessly pro-Hollywood that you make a case for anti-Hollywood, about how bleeding on the street in the dead of night both is and isn't as romantic as you think. I can't recommend it enough, especially for my fellow punk gals. And 221 people liked that review. This is a woman that, presumably a woman, is the internet, who mm. grew up reading a thesaurus. A thesaurus, thesaurus. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, it's good. I, I agree with all her points. I, uh, I just don't know how to speak so eloquently. Yeah. It's hard to give a, a, a broad case, even though I kind of mentioned the same thing about the ego so blinding that you miss the good that's right in front of you. Whether or not the guy in the van is really like a quote-unquote good guy or is going to be the best like partner for her, I don't know that. But it does seem like she is at times given this opportunity for like, you know, this can be easier. You're given outs to this and she just doesn't take it. Or at least offer some comfort. Mm -hmm. Now, on the flip side of that, we have another user on Letterboxd. I don't follow this, but uh, I was scrolling through reviews and uh, this one called out to me. This is by user Kubrick on the fist. Wow. 
So here's what you they can had read to that say. in so many different ways. Yeah. Yep. Or two, really. Fan or not fan. This is what they had to say. This film is insufferable in every Ooh. way. Wow. I can't grasp how people enjoy this. There is no mood, atmosphere, tone, tension, charm, character, passion, technical proficiency, intelligence, or subtlety in this at all. It's simply a boring drawl for 90 minutes, but it feels like I'm watching a nine-hour film somehow. They tried making the end shot in the phone booth to be some sort of empathetic triumph for the character, for the character, but holy fuck, Ren is so goddamn irritating. I don't grasp how anyone could relate to the character unless they were an addict. I've known people like this, and yeah, heavy addicts. I like the idea of this film executed by the Safties and heaven knows what, because it leans so heavily into the drug element. The aimlessness becomes thematic when you have a character wasting away due to addiction. When she's an irritating piece of garbage with forced attempts at sentimentality, there's nothing to care about. This was a waste of time at best. I cannot believe I sat through this entire thing. The most redeemable parts of the film were where it showed films on screen because for a brief moment, I was taken out of the reality of this garbage. That review has no likes, I should point out, but... Yeah, that's... I mean, you don't have to like a film, but that felt very personal, right? <laughs> and very... Like, I mean, I'm biased out of my, you know, uh, experience of how I sit through it. I don't spend a lot of time with the academic, you know, uh, critic critique of films. Mm. That one's a little personal. There's something else underneath that, isn't there? Like, yeah. incel tone just hates women just from the well, I don't want. I don't want to project that onto, Cal, onto this person. Uh, just but. read that. The first... Uh, like two, I don't even know if they used any punctuation. That, that feels like something that's like, a, you know, a seven run on <laughs> sentences. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Anyways, right. that's what uh, some people, uh, other people had to say. Uh, I guess we should answer the question that we always ask, Dave. Is this, does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? Uh, I'm, I'm going to say yes and yes in the asterisks of indie film history. I, I think it's culturally relevant. Because I do feel like if this got a, you know, medium release, I think people would latch onto this for good or for mm -hmm. ill. Um, it has some universal themes. I think we brought and, up uh, Uncut Gems last week. I mean, if latch on the Uncut Gems, I mean, this has yeah a, a same formula structure a little bit, even though that yeah. one's a little bit more plot heavy. That's the thing. I mean, this guy would have liked that because it started a man. But at any rate... Uh, I think that this is, yeah, I'm going to go with the SCS. I actually found it quite interesting to, to work through. You know, I, I can't remember what I was reading here now, but I was reading an article or something like that. You know, we always ask about cultural relevance, mm -hmm. right? Like, does this still have relevance for today? Which is a question. But I think there's another question you can ask, which is whether this is culturally significant, which is mm. a slightly different question. Well, then, yes. Yeah. That's how I think I would put this. I do think it holds up. I don't think this is so like... Passé. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, passé to current trends. I'd be like, what is it that I'm watching? And I think it's significant because of it, you know, guess being the first American independent film to be accepted at the Cannes Film Festival, being one of the early uh, examples of like a new woman's voice being brought into American cinema, that sort of thing. I would probably yeah, say, a, I don't know, a, a maybe to relevance. I think there's a lot of people who love this movie. I think they were re rediscovered that when it was brought onto the criteria. Criterion channel. So I think there is still tendrils that's putting out into Ooh, the culture for sure. Tendrils. Kyle also owns a thesaurus. Nice. Correct. We do need to rate this film, but before we do, this is what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. 
We also release two videos each week on our YouTube channel that matches the movie we're talking about that week. On Mondays, we react to the trailer, and then on Fridays, it's a mini review of that film. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash kdvstm. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month, Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So there's uh, two lists we have to look at for this movie. But first off, let's talk about our 1982 rankings. Dave, out of five, what would you give to this movie? I am thinking three. I'm going to give it a three. Yeah. No, it's so hilarious, Dave. What? We had felt like such opposing viewpoints, but I'm also we giving that, it a three. I don't think we were that opposing. I think that the tone is different. Because I think you have this romantic streak where you want things to always seem more positive than they can be. And uh, I'm more mm. cynical. And this movie plays to both because it has uh, it's got a little touch of everything. Yeah. Well, that's going to uh, you know, average out to a three, <laughs> which is going to place it into our number 10 position wow, on the list. Pretty high. Uh, right above Losing Ground, interestingly enough, right below Sophie's Choice. What we also need to do, though, Dave, is see where this places on our first-time director's list, because this is, of course, Susan Sondland's first... Oh, right. First... I forgot about that bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It ties with a couple other movies, Dave, but let's go from the bottom up and see where we want to actually place this. So, do you think this is better or worse than American Beauty? Oh, man. Better. Ugh, I don't know. Sure, better. Well, you, you hated American Beauty, yeah. so there, yeah, we're, we were kind of split on that option. Yeah. How about Play Misty for me? Would you put this below or above Play Misty uh, for me? The, the tone's so hard, eh, doing these lists. Yeah. I'm going to put it above. This is just me. You can you can interject. You want smithereens to throw Play Misty for me out of a window. <laughs> just punch it right in the face. Clint would definitely punch the window right and yeah. fall to their death over a cliff. Clint would definitely punch ren in the face but uh let's try it i don't know you, and with this these don't have to be the final rankings this is just my thoughts since you're running through this list this. i think i think i'm gonna focus on that cultural relevance or cultural significance mm -hmm. i think i feel you need to in a way put it above those so two just for that i think this is where my mind is reason. at right now yeah all right well so we have 16 films on our first time director's list and it is going to enter our list at the number nine position wow. below titus another film directed by a woman by the way mm -hmm. and above play misty for me so mm -hmm. that's where we're going mm -hmm. with there Good. um Good. we should find out what we're going to watch next week i'm going to push this button here this is very exciting for me, Dave. This is a movie, again, that I've only heard the name of, but I don't really know anything about it. We're going to be watching Starstruck next week, Nothing. which, as far as I know, is from Australia and is a new wave musical. Ooh. So. I'm ready. Do some singing and dancing Although, next when you week. say new wave, I hope it's not some, like, you know, brutal. <laughs> no, just like cynical sense. thing. D yeah. Like new wave as far as music goes, basically. Oh, Okay. And I'm, then I'm down. Five stars. We'll put on a jacket and roll up the sleeves of the jacket, put on our shades, spike up I'm our hair. On, I think I put on some New Order and Emerson told me to turn it off. Oh, really? <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> Although, to be fair, if you actually start listening to the lyrics, you know, they weren't happy people. If you listen to Joy oh, Division. Oh, you're telling me the person who OD'd himself did not write super happy lyrics? Oh, that was Joy Division. So, oh, yeah. shoot. Yeah, you're right. Wrong, wrong band. Yeah. But, you know, uh, New Order didn't. Uh, get any happier <laughs> even if the tone uh, of their music did right they're catchy sure. clubby they don't sing about being happy 
love, but, uh, love newer. Anyways, so you, you're saying that you, you did buy those glasses though, right? Yeah. No, no. I bought them. I paid. I, they, they're owned by me. I didn't. Oh, okay. Why do I? Snatch are those sirens I hear in the background? It's hilarious that you think somebody else is pretentious.